One of the many good things about being Catholic is the Mass. We have the Mass. And one of the great things about Mass is not, not only does it unite us all to Christ in the Eucharist, right, that alone would be enough, but it unites us with other Christians, and not just other Christians who are here with us in our own time, but with Christians from all the generations before us, because we are participating in the same ritual worship that Christians have been offering to God since the very beginning of the church. The origins of the Mass go back to the New Testament, back to that Last Supper that Jesus celebrated with his apostles in Jerusalem. But to get the earliest, you know, really good description of the order of the liturgy, of of how we worship, you have to look in the middle of the second century. There's a letter that was written by St. Justin Martyr to the Roman emperor explaining what we do when we worship. You see, there was a lot of misinformation being circulated about Christians at the time because only initiated Christians were permitted to participate, to even be there during the liturgy. And so all the pagans were spreading rumors about the nefarious things we do on Sunday, like eat flesh and drink blood. And that was used to kind of advance the persecutions against the church. So St. Justin said, I'll write to the emperor and I'll, I'll let him know what we really do. And so we have a very detailed description of the early mass, the way the first Christians worshiped. And I'll read you a little bit. He writes, on the day named after the sun... All who live in the city or countryside assemble, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read. When the lector has finished, the presider addresses us, admonishing us and exhorting us to imitate the splendid things we have heard. And then we all stand and pray. And when we have finished praying, bread, wine, and water are brought up. The presider offers prayers of thanksgiving, and the people give their assent with an amen. Next, the gift over which the thanksgiving has been spoken are distributed, and each one shares in them, while they are also sent with the deacons to the absent brethren. The wealthy who are willing make contributions, and the collection is deposited with the presider who takes care of all in need. Doesn't all that sound familiar? That's what we do when we gather on the day named after the sun on Sunday. We gather together. We read the scriptures. We hear a homily. We participate in community prayer. The priest says the words of thanksgiving or Eucharist in Greek. He says the words of Eucharist over the bread and wine. And then we distribute that Eucharist, which St. Justin describes in another part of his letter as not ordinary food and drink, but the flesh and blood of the incarnate Jesus. It's all there. But the thing that really struck me the first time I read this description was the last thing that St. Justin mentions. They took up a collection. And that struck me because out of all the things that we do at Mass, all of the really important, spiritually meaningful things, taking up the collection seems like the most mundane. But yet St. Justin thought it was important enough to include in his description of the liturgy. In the middle of all these sacred actions that we do every Sunday, we pass the basket. Why do we do that? 
Well, it makes sense that we have to take up a collection because the church is like any other organization in that we have bills to pay, right? It takes money to keep the lights on. And so if we want the church to continue to be here for us week after week, we need to provide for the needs of the church. And if we want the church to be able to help those in need, we need to provide for that too because the resources that allow the church to help those in need are the same resources that you put in the basket on Sunday. The church has no other means of income. That's what the church has. And that's why one of the precepts of the church is to provide for the needs of the church. So it shouldn't surprise us that an offertory collection was part of the, uh, of the church's life from the very beginning because the church had practical needs then too. But there's more to it than that. Because making your offering isn't just something that Christians do, but it's part of the ritual of the Mass. It's a liturgical action. And that tells us something about the nature of what we do when we make our offering. It's bound up somehow in our worship of God. In fact, it's a sacred thing that we do. And to better appreciate that, we need to go back even earlier than the second century. We need to go back all the way to the beginning, in fact, where we read in Genesis of how God created the heavens and the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars, all of it, all of it. Everything in existence owes that existence to God. It all belongs to him. But there's one problem. God gives creation everything. But creation can't give anything back to God. Creation can't thank God for its existence. It doesn't know that it's blessed. It cannot praise its creator. It cannot love him. So God's solution to this problem is to create something who can do those things. He creates man. We are that unique part of creation that is made in the image and the likeness of the creator. He has given us rational souls. He has given us free will. And that means we have agency. And so God has given us care over all creation. We are stewards of everything God has made. And so when you and I worship God here on Sunday, we're not just doing it on our own behalf. We're doing it on behalf of trees and rivers and oceans and animals and stars and planets and galaxies. If you don't believe me, read Psalm 148. In that psalm we pray, praise him sun and moon. Give praise all shining stars. Praise him highest heavens. Let them all praise the Lord's name. Praise the Lord from the earth, you sea monsters and all deep waters, you lightning and hail, snow and clouds, storm winds, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and cedars, you animals wild and tame, you creatures that crawl and fly. Let them all praise the Lord's name, for his name alone is exalted. But none of those things can praise the Lord's name because they don't have a voice. We give them voice. When we praise the Lord, we speak for them. 
Or look in the book of Daniel and, and read that great song of praise that's sung by the three men as they emerge from the furnace unharmed and they cry out in thanksgiving, let the earth bless the Lord, praise and exalt him above all forever. Mountains and hills bless the Lord, praise and exalt him above all forever. Everything growing from the earth bless the Lord, praise and exalt him above all forever. You springs bless the Lord. Season rivers, bless the Lord. Dolphins and water creatures, bless the Lord. You birds of the air, bless the Lord. Beasts wild and tame, bless the Lord. When we worship God, we need to understand that we don't just do so on our behalf. We do so on behalf of the whole created universe. And that's why the right worship of God from the very beginning has always involved making a sacrifice which is giving part of God's creation back to him, acknowledging that it belongs to him, not us. We are his servants. He is the master. We are the stewards, and he is the king. And the steward's job is to care for the master's goods, to use them wisely and fruitfully as the master would, and then to give the fruits of our labor back to the master. So the first act of worship that we read about in the scriptures is Cain's fruit offering and Abel's offering of the firstlings of his flock. Adam and Eve's children giving the fruit of their labor back to God. This is why the Israelites were commanded to offer 10% of their produce. Not 10% of what they had left over at the end of the year. The first 10% of their produce to God. And this is even why today we continue to do things like use candles and incense in our worship. We don't just do that to create a nice atmosphere. Those things are offerings to God. The Israelites offered incense to God every day in the temple. And we even read in the book of Revelation that incense will be part of our worship of God in the heavenly Jerusalem. The smoke rising representing the prayers of the saints. And it's an offering because as the incense burns, it is consumed. It's being sacrificed. We may like the fact that it smells nice, but that aroma is not for us. It's a fragrant offering we're making to God. And the same thing is true of candles, right? They're consumed as they burn, so they're a sacrifice. It's an oblation. That's why we call them votive candles. Votive means offering. It's an offering. Candles are a work of human hands, so time and talent goes into making them. So they represent a sacrifice of our own labor. And now you and I might not have made the candles ourselves, right? But we purchased them. And that money that we spend on the candles, that's a sacrifice of our time and our labor that we're offering. So when you come and light a votive candle here in the church, that's why you first put a little, a little money in the slot, right? Because that's your sacrifice. That's your offering that you're making. Now, of course, Jesus is the perfect offering. How could he not be? God himself made man. And so when he offered himself on the cross as the perfect man, as the true head of all creation... There can never be a greater, more perfect offering to the Father than that. And so we need to unite our offerings, our sacrifices, to his here at the Mass. And this is the spiritual reason why we take up a collection at Mass. Yes, the church needs your gifts to operate because it takes money to maintain our building, to pay our employees, to be able to assist those in need. But we don't pass the basket as a fundraiser to do those things. It's an offering. It's an opportunity for you to make a return to God of part of what he has entrusted you with, acknowledging that everything you have 
really belongs to him. Today's gospel tells of the three servants who were entrusted with different amounts of talents by their master. Now, a talent was a unit of currency that was worth a tremendous amount. So even one talent is a great treasure. And so to the first servant, the master gives five, and to the next one, he gives two, and to the last, only one, each according to his ability, we're told. And we might look at that and think there's a disparity of wealth there among the servants, but there really isn't, because none of the servants owns any talents. They all belong to the master. And that's why when the master returns, he expects them back. And it's why he's equally pleased with the servant who returns ten, where he had five, as the one who returns four when he had two. Because it's not about the amount. It's not about the amount. And why he's displeased with the servant who returns only his one. right? Because those first two servants used what they were given in a fruitful way that pleased the master, that was faithful to his wishes. And the third did nothing with what was entrusted to him. He just buried it in the sand. So it doesn't matter, what this tells us is it doesn't matter how rich or poor we might be in this life because all of us are able to make a pleasing offering to God simply by being good stewards of what he has entrusted us with and being willing to return to him the fruits of our labors. Everything we have, whether it's a lot or a little, truly belongs to God. So are we using it for his purposes? Because the most valuable thing that God entrusts us with is ourselves. And the circumstances of our life may at times mean that we have nothing else to offer him. But we always have ourselves to give. And that's the most precious gift of all. God has given us mercy He's given us his grace. We can share that mercy with others and thereby multiply what God has given us, bearing fruit for his kingdom. If you have nothing else to offer God, be merciful to each other. Be loving to each other. Be be at peace. That's the fruit God wants you to bear. And if you do that, knowing that you are stewards first and foremost of your own soul, then at the end of our lives, we'll have become fragrant offerings to God so that when we meet our master on that final day, we'll hear him say, come, share in your master's joy.